thank you very much for having me. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, as usual, I have a lot of possible, you know, ways to um, to go to go about it um, in my mind. Uh, I haven't picked one, so um, so it'll just happen. Uh, I'll, actually, this time I'm going to do something different than um, than I've done before for this um, function for yoga teacher training. Uh, a lot of times I end up and I'll probably still do it, uh, just sort of giving a, a summary and going over kind of main themes and um, topics in the Gita. Uh, and what I end up often not doing much of is um, reading from the Gita itself. Um, I mean, usually I guess there's a, a little bit of that, but anyway, I, I just thought today I will actually start with a verse that I open to um, a few minutes ago, randomly, um, and it, it's a it's a uh, favorite verse. Um, I, you know, I, I, but there are a lot. You know, I, the, I guess each of the verses is in some way in partake. Each of the verses of the Gita, each of the seven hundred verses of the Gita, in some way partakes of a you know, a favorite-ness for me. But um, this, this verse is one that I really like. Uh, it's in chapter six. Um, there are 18 chapters, 700 verses, 18 chapters. So this is the, in the sixth chapter. Uh, this is text 30. And um, yeah, well, in chapter six, there are... Uh, 47 verses. Well, so this is uh, past halfway of, of chapter six. So this is Krishna speaking to Arjuna on the battlefield. So anyway, this, like, you know, any verse uh, just picked, picked at random um, and, and read on its own you know, it lacks context, um, at least initially without putting it in context. So um, I'll start with the verse and then get, give it some context. So it, it, here it is in English, uh, translated from Sanskrit. For one who sees me everywhere and sees everything in me, I am never lost nor is he ever lost to me. Um, so um, what does it for me, <laughs> you know, about this, you know, in this verse is, uh, you know, what I'm inspired by here is, is the idea of seeing God everywhere, seeing truth everywhere, seeing value in everything, everything. It's a big that's a tall order, you know, obviously. Um, I don't know, uh, seeing, seeing Krishna in this year, <laughs> you know, this 2020 thing. 
is, uh, you know, uh, probably the better, the, the, I mean, it's the best option I know of. Um, or it's certainly part of, part of the recipe for, you know, the healthiest approach to dealing with life, looking at life that I know of. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I like the idea of it. it I, there's, you know, I, I see uh, in it, in this concept of, uh, in this, well, I'm gonna say, yeah, concept uh, in this um, request uh, that Krishna is making to Arjuna. Um, or this part of the bigger request that Krishna is making to Arjuna, um, I see. Um, I guess I instinctively recognize that there is something that connects everything, that life is a singularity, even though it's infinitely complex and untraceably <laughs> uh, uh, vast and varied. Um, it's, it's, a, it's one thing. <laughs> and um, and so when I and so upon being presented with thoughts or teachings that even indirectly reference that that singularity, that oneness, that interconnectedness, um, my you know there's an instinctive response from some part of something in me from my soul uh, that um, is uh, something like attraction or I just, there's something in me that recognizes that's the direction. Um, I find, I'll find my peace in. And that has been the case for, for me um, uh, over the years. And um, so, uh, I'll go back to the verse here for a moment. Um, so for one who sees me everywhere and everything in me. Okay, so what's being presented here is Krishna as understood as God is saying to Arjuna, his, his beloved friend, uh, his um, spiritual uh, associate, um, He's he's saying he's he's recommending um, or he's describing um, that a state a state in which one is never lost where one doesn't feel lost um, and that state is characterized by seeing seeing in this case Krishna everywhere seeing seeing God everywhere uh, and also seeing, and this means like, this means seeing first and foremost with, well, it, it, it means seeing with the eyes, but that's only possible if we see with our mind, with our mind's eye. So what we're really being furnished with here in this verse and in the Gita as, as a whole is, is um, food or um, fuel for uh, our, our, um, we're being presented with material to furnish our, our thought life with. Uh, so, yeah, so seeing Krishna everywhere means seeing, seeing with our, with our thoughts, seeing with our, 
you could say our mind's eye or seeing with our intelligence. And deeper down, you would say it's seeing with our heart, you know, seeing with the eye of the heart. Um, so, yeah, so that's a little bit about what's, what's meant here by seeing. It, you know, ultimately it also um, involves the physical eyes, but uh, what, comes, what comes through the eye uh, can uh, have different effects depending on what happens next after it, after it comes through the eye. So after we see something, this is another Gita subject that everything we experience through our physical senses is ultimately um, first, uh, it, it, the first, if, the first um, part of the process that leads to whatever effect we're going to get whatever effect we get from what we experience through our body, whatever effect we get from what we hear or see or taste or touch or smell, whatever effect we get is first, um, it, the beginning of what determines the effect is what's going on with our mind. So the mind is like the sixth sense. So we have the five physical senses and whatever is experienced through those physical senses, um, is uh, the initial processing of that in Vedic thinking takes place in, in the mind or in what's, what's translated into English as, as mind. In Sanskrit, the term is manas. Uh, so, I mean, my, you know, in English mind, you know, sometimes it, 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 there, there's a, a broad, there's like a, there's a range of, of things that come under the, the, the term mind. So, um, in different systems of, of analysis and uh, understanding of uh, human behavior, you know, the, what's meant by mind may vary a little bit, but uh, so please bear with me um, for now. We'll, we'll, we can bring all these things into further focus as we go along. Um, anyway, so there's, anyway, there's a little bit of uh, a, a tangent. So I'm just gonna come back here. So for one who sees me everywhere, but also sees that everything is in, within Krishna, within contain. So the idea is that um, the supreme being, the supreme truth, the supreme consciousness, uh, is in everything. But also everything is in it. So you know, it's 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 everywhere, and everywhere is located within it. So it's really, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate. Um, state it's the ultimate uh, reality is krishna is is speaking as the ultimate reality you could say personified the ultimate reality is talking to arjuna you know really the ultimate reality is always talking to everyone all the time um, in this particular case in this event that's recorded in the mahabharat which the gita is a part of um, you know, it's a, it, it, the, the supreme reality is talking in a way that's very distinct from, you know, the way it typically is it or he or she has talked to me in my life. Um, life talks to me through everything, you know, to us through everything that happens from within and from without. In this particular case, that reality is standing in front of Arjuna as a, as a person, uh, and as a um, person with a form and a personal identity and a story. So that's 
you know, that's a that's one thing that's very uh, distinguishing. That's one thing that's very distinct uh, about the Gita is you have you have you're being we're being presented with the idea that God is talking directly to Arjuna and to us uh, by way of this this text, the recording of the discussion with Arjuna in text form. Okay, well, anyway, that was the uh, verse that I randomly opened to, and I think that was so, that's something I'll, I'll continue to do in the future, because <laughs> uh, usually I end up starting with my own story, which is fine. Um, but uh, anyway, I think this was, that, that was a good way to do it. Um, but to, to, to give a little bit of my own story, like, because um, I think it's natural to wonder also, you know, I, I know, Amanda, you know. <laughs> But I'll share it with um, Fran Fran Frankie. And can you remind me of your name? Uh, the, the young lady. Lindsay. Lindsay. Uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been involved with this text in various ways for um, uh, over, th over 30 years. Uh, since I was a teenager, in my late since my late teens, and I got seriously into the pursuit of of its meaning and its uh, application to my life when I was in my late teens, early twenties. I lived uh, ultimately. My interest took me uh, to the point of living, moving into living in um, an ashram. Uh, in a temple and studying it and also just doing doing the day-to-day -day things that are part of temple life that are um connected to or that that, ex that exemplify or are in pursuit of the uh you know the, the teaching of the gita so um and, and then i for most of the years of my life now though i've been just uh i've been working with the um the teachings of the Gita in uh, not in a mon not in a monastic setting, but in a uh, in a uh, sort of more normal um, American life style kind of way, just um, living life and um, thinking, uh, filtering, processing life. Um, and responding to life in ways that uh, are informed by my um, affection for the message of the Gita. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's a sort of uh, summary of, of, my, of my connection to it. There's plenty more detail, but- um, Can I ask a question? That would be what, great. What, um, what was it that drew you to it? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty young age in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I had at the point that I first uh, contacted, kind of contacted it in a way that really um, left an impression on me. I mean, I'd probably heard of the Gita somewhere when I was in my earlier teens. Um, as a matter of fact, I know I did. I know I heard heard about it because I had, I had received, not the Gita itself, but smaller books. Mm from people on the street in New York City, from, sure. from Krishna devotees in my earlier teens. And I had looked through them and I had kept them, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in them. 
they, I kept them because they were sort of like artifacts from my adventures in the city. I, I'm from upstate, two hours north of the city. And that's where I live now also. Uh, but that's, I grew up around here. Anyway, so that was just part of the exoticness of the city to have like, you know, people, uh, you know, who look like they're from another planet giving, <laughs> you know, giving these, these otherworldly books out. But um, anyway, what really ultimately, uh, but to, you know, to go back to the question, um, by the time I was in my later teens, I had, I was, I dropped out of high school kind of gradually, but ultimately I completely dropped out in, when I was 16. And uh, this was, you know, I was going to school um, up, upstate, uh, but I was, I was going to the city a lot by the time I was 15 and 16. And then I, I dropped out and I was living in the Lower East Side. It's part of the CBGB's kind of sure. uh, world punk scene, hardcore, uh, living more or less on the street uh, in burned out, in a burned out building or in, you know, very sort of uh, crude, crude dwellings. And it was in that time, you know, in that whole phase, I was, you know, increasingly getting exhausted with, I was already, I mean, I was already doing that because I was exhausted with, with life. Uh, and what I, and again, I was only 16, but I was also exhausted with what I could see life would probably be for me if I continue, if, if I, if I continued, you know, on the ordinary path of life, which I didn't see, which I couldn't even do. I couldn't even see how I was going to do that. Uh, and that, that's why I, I phased out. But so it was this exhaustion with life, my existence, coupled with, you know, coupled with a, an interest in the bigger questions of life that I'd had from the time I was a little kid. And maybe most of us, if not all of us have, you know, the, the, those questions. Why do I, you know, why am I here? Why do I have to die? Is there anything, is there, you know, more than this and, and things like that. So those were, those were, those interests were in the mix and in combination with this exhaustion with, with life, material life, so to speak. Um, I was my I was I was ready for <laughs> I was willing pretty much to try anything that could um, keep me going, you know, and especially if it also, I mean, and but what, but not just anything. I mean, in theory, you know, there, there was that general willingness to do anything, but having done some things to try to uh, address my my situation, I had. I had narrowed down the options. I had concluded that there are certain things that weren't, it was evident that certain things weren't going to do it for me. So when I was presented with, um, you know, well, not just books, but specifically discussion, I was around people uh, in, in that Lower East Side context who were into this. And so I, I was around them when they were talking about it and, and my interest was sparked. That, you know, from listening to discussions about it. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess I, I was, you know, I was just exhausted with life early er, from early on. Uh, I already, I kind of, it's like my mind always did the life math and, and summed everything and saw how, you know, just processed everything as being pointless because it ends. You know, my mind was just always going right to, and 
the conclusion is you die and it means nothing. So I couldn't, I couldn't check that, that um, process, that, that calculation process in my mind. It, my mind just did that with everything. So when I was in school, it was like, what's the point? Um, it just leads to ultimately to seeming, it seems to lead to meaninglessness. Um, and yet, you know, there was a, I had, but I had a sense in, in, in an innate sense that life means something. It's, it, 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 it's quite the d display, you know, of, of, of apparent design sure. and of, there seems to be something going on. It's so it seems so undecipherable, but it still seemed to be about something. And so, you know, so there, therein was the rub that, you know, while, it, it, you know, every, all, all of the obvious, you know, options don't seem to have anything to do with, don't seem to address this, you know, this um, self-evident meaningfulness of life. So to me, that, that was just like this very, that was this very troubling contradiction. And um, I, I, you know, um, it sounds like you really needed, like if you didn't believe in something, you were, uh, if you didn't have, you know, if you didn't believe in something, where were you then? Yeah, totally. Yes, and so I, you know, I read different, I read uh, the, you know, I read the teachings of many different traditions and, and texts and, you know, there was always something that I got from it and something that didn't work for me. And to a degree, I, that would that was the same. That was also the case with, you know, the Vedic texts that, or the four, or at least the the versions of them that I you know, that I was presented with. There were things that didn't make sense to me, that I couldn't under that, that didn't seem clear uh, philosophically, logically, and also things that did seem clear that I wasn't sure uh, were entirely. Um, you know, uh, good or, you know, uh, the, the direction, part of the direction I wanted to go in, but enough of it was the main thing really, that the main thing that really made me comfortable enough with, with the, the teachings and the tradition to participate was the, was the emphasis on our identity being soul, not body. That made sense to me that we are an essence, we are consciousness, and that we're complete, we're, we are not the body. And that was something that was not so clearly, one of the one of the obstacles for me with fully wholeheartedly feeling at home with Christianity was, which I focused on first. I mean, when my spiritual search began, I was really focused on, on the Bible. But one of the things that just was never clear, clearly articulated enough for my mind was the, was the distinction between the eternal soul and the temporary body. Maybe there are, you know, maybe there are uh, strains and, and sects of Christianity where that is more clear. Certainly, I know historically in ancient times, the early Christian Gnostics were very clear about that, but they were ultimately deemed heretics <laughs> and th their texts survived, but, the, but, but no living tradition of Gnosticism survived, although in modern times there have been resurgences 
based on, you know, based on the texts. But anyway, the forms of Christianity that I had access to, it was this, you know, there was just this mix of, you know, the, a person is sort of body, mind, soul. And um, what was, what ultimately worked for my, my mind, you know, very emphatic, very, very dramatically and strongly was this emphasis on, no, you're just a soul. You're inhabiting this, you're, wear, you're wearing this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, certainly amazing, you know, uh, essentially costume or identity, um, this garment in a sense, this machine, all, you know, all these descriptors could be used, but, but at, at the end of the day, it's something that you are distinct from. So that was really the thing that was so clearly articulated and it, it, how clearly that was articulated and how much emphasis that was given was what um, attracted me strongly, strongly to, to the whole package. And it, it's also, this is not who I am. This is just the coat that I was given in this lifetime moment, et cetera. Perfect, yeah, exactly. I, I had already, to me, that was already something that I had, I had never really found clear words to articulate it in, but in my early teens, I, I had, you know, preliminary recognition of that. It, you know, it, it seemed to me like there's a difference between me and this stuff sure. that, that changes, you know, it changes and I'm still me is, you know, and that's one of the, that's one of the things that uh, also glued me to, to the Gita was that, that very point is, is, uh, hit on early on in the text, primarily in chapter two. Um, one of the verses that, the main verse I think that conveys that is the one in which Krishna says, um, as, the, as the soul, as the embodied soul continually passes in this life from, well, he's speaking to Arjuna who's, who's a guy. So he puts it in masculine. He says, sure. so as the soul goes from boyhood to youth and from youth to old age, the soul, similarly passes into a, another body at the time of death and a person who's spiritually awake doesn't find that to be bewildering. That's easy to understand. Um, so, but that idea that this, you know, yeah, the body's changing, but you're the same person um, to me was a real, was a real indicator that, oh, maybe I found what I was looking for. And, you know, there's a lot in the, in the, in the Gita, you know, I can't think of anything that's in the Gita itself that doesn't work for me. In the broader, voluminous, vast Vedic texts um, and in the commentaries on them, I sometimes encounter things that I don't have that same level of immediate connection to. Sometimes mm -hmm. because they're just, they're not, they're not uh, things that I have any immediate experience uh, um, to connect me, you know, I don't have my own experience that connects me to certain, I mean, like for, you know, there are certain things which are, um, I mean, it's, they're very vast descriptions of how, you know, how, thi how, the, how the planets in the universe are arranged and how uh, different things in the, in the world work. And, you know, some of those, some of those things are, ju I, I, there's, they're just not immediately, they're not things that I can, uh, you know, just see for are for sure facts. But I, I, you know, because they're part of the package in, that I found 
you know, uh, the main things that I was, I was needing and looking for in, um, you know, I, I uh, opened my mind to them basically. But, but the Gita is, is really for me, you know, it's kind of, it's a desert island, but you know, I take, it's, it does, it's what it addresses uh, the things that I personally practically have needed to address. And it doesn't, and it doesn't, uh, I feel it doesn't, uh, it's not complicated by what can sometimes seem like unnecessary extras. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, that's, you know, certainly there are those who would argue that there are no extras, it's all necessary, it's all there for a reason. And I understand that and can appreciate that. But in my in my own you know experience, the Gita has really um, has, has really been all I was looking for. I mean, I real it's part it itself is part of the Mahabharata. It's not it's it's not its own. Uh, it, it you know there's it, it's never uh, it, you know there's no mistaking it for being entirely its own text. It's a section of small section of a of a huge book, um, which has a lot of uh, in the book that book Mahabharata has other sections that also have this concentrated sort of philo philosoph spiritual philosophical um, teachings, but it's mm -hmm. all mixed in story. It's all mixed in what, what's presented as basically historical narrative about these dynasties that were uh, in power, um, you know, 5,000-ish years ago. And there are some tall tale kind of things in there. And, um, uh, you know, and those things are understood by the orthodox, uh, uh, I guess you could say Hindus or, or bhakti yogis as being literal historical uh, information. And, uh, you know, I just keep myself open to that possibility, but also I don't, um, I don't, uh, I don't know. And so uh, my, my, you know, my honest, my real connection to the text is to its to its to its practical philosophical teachings, and and that has really that has really worked for me, and um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like it did more than work for you. It sounds like it convinced your brain to keep you going. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's fair. That's right. How do you are, is how do you have a yourself have a long uh, is it, are you newly studying uh, this or? You... Uh, I'm newly studying uh, the Gita, although I have like five different versions of it in my house because I keep buying it and then intending to read it. But um, I've been uh, I've been studying yoga for about 20 years and this has been my one day I'll um, do this. And um, I'm also a psychologist and um, uh and I have a, a podcast. I, I already subscribed to yours because now I'm because um, it's very interesting and it'll help me study for a midterm. So um, no, I'm just intrigued so what, by all things, you know, brainy and dorky as long as it doesn't involve numbers. So <laughs> no numbers whatsoever. I'm cool then. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, you know, uh, that just reminds me of something that comes up in in conversations about the Gita, which is that yeah, it's presented somewhere along the way. It's been it was writ it was it's you know put in book form with numbered verses and chapters. But if but it's to be understood as 
you know, it's, it's content is it took, you know, it is that of a, it, it, it's a conversation that took place right. with two people. Um, and uh, yeah, without, without numbers. <laughs> yes. I like your, I like your comparison to the, well, as, as long as I don't have to add or subtract them, I'm fine. But um, I like your, uh, I like your, I like the part that you shared because it does remind me of, you know, this year and everything. Although I think we just pissed off Kali. That's been my theory, but um, you know, yeah. but yours is more optimistic. So we'll go with yours. In Srimad Bhagavatam, they were saying that the earth cannot tolerate a liar. And when the politicians get out of control, she takes everyone down. I keep thinking about that nonstop this year. <laughs> is it, is, wait, is that, wait, so that the earth takes it down? Yeah, but Kali was the one who was supposed to give all the kids the measles and the mumps. Dave. <laughs> you know, it's, um, there are, uh, it, one thing is that, you know, it, what anything, it, it can be many things happening, you could say simultaneously. Oh, it, it, yeah. it's, what, we, what we seem to be presented with in the vast uh, texts that make up the Vedas is a, uh, is a you could say, a set of, of options for how to process and, and interpret. And, it, and so, you know, and therefore you have, you know, and because there, you know, so there are so many different forms of, there's so many different sects of Hinduism because of this. There are different, the texts, they all, they're all, you know, the source material is the same for each of these sects, but there's so much room in those, you know, in the texts for uh, different ways of, different points of emphasis and mm -hmm. different ways of um, explaining what's going on. And, uh, you know, take karma, even just the topic of karma. I mean, this is, I'm kind of shifting a little bit, but the, the same idea that, that things can be understood in different ways based on the Vedas. We're taught, you know, the Vedas, the Gita also, you know, specifically teaches about karma. For every action, there's a reaction. We're also presented with the idea in the Gita and in other uh, specifically bhakti texts, mm that everything, certainly the understanding is for, for one who is, considers themselves to be and is, tries to be a devotee of Krishna, the idea is that you don't have any karma. Actually, everything that happens to you is a direct arrangement of supreme will. Mm -hmm. So that can be confusing. So which is it? Is it impersonal karma or is it personal arrangement? What that used to confuse me over time, what became clear is that it's the same thing. You can just, we have the option of understanding it, of emphasizing the causal factor that we are presently able to fathom or relate to. So for someone who, for, you know, basically when you don't see life as being within the Supreme person and the Supreme person is within it, when you see life as something other than that, then it makes sense to, to explain, then it can make sense to explain everything that happens in karmic terms. They're just laws of nature. They're not personal arrangements. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, and that's just that's just one example of how there are, you know, there are just so many options for yeah, interpreting phenomena mm -hmm. um, that are all, all still Vedic or, you know, consistent with yogic thinking. So yeah, you know, well, you know, 
Yeah, we definitely, this idea that there is some relationship between human activity and what happens, human activity and, you know, reward and punishment from essentially extraterrestrial powerful beings, demigods, devas, sure. uh, gods and goddesses. Um, uh, is, um, I lost my train of thought. The, the the idea that, that we're... Yeah, the idea that there's a connection between it I, is at, for me, that's at once, it, it makes sense. It made a lot more sense once upon a time. It makes less sense to me sometimes now because it seems, you know, it, because it assumes, because it gives so much importance to, us. <laughs> to what the Vedas are ultimately saying doesn't really even, isn't to be taken you know, as being even real, ultimately, it's an illusion. So mm. that doesn't mean that there's not some way that Kali or, or different, per, you know, devas factor into things. It's just that there is to me a, um, there's room in there for, uh, you know, an expansion of, of nuance in the understanding of it. Sure. It's all fun. I mean, the, 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 and this brings me to, you know, an, another point that I think is really important in all this, which is that what, what sort of matters at the end of the day is that we've spent our time focusing, our, focusing ourselves in this general direction, regardless of what, you know, the measurable outcome is uh, today or tomorrow, or it, in terms of some kind of, you know, articulatable understanding or some answer really the, the whole strategy of the Vedic sages seems to be to just get people preoccupied with and interested in this kind of thinking, this kind of direction of, of, um, of thought. And that alone has, um, has a positive effect. Um, it fills, you know, it, it engages, you know, we're pres the, the Vedas offer uh, engagement for the mind and the intellect uh, that um, ultimately has uh, a purifying effect, a spiritual effect. Mm. Um, okay, so I'll just now sort of, uh, are there, well, any, any other, does anyone have any, any question at all that, you know, sort of relates at, uh, in any way? Any topics or feel free. Um, so now another, I'll just, so now, you know, I'll, I'll mention some main points of the Gita. So again, it, it, close to the beginning, this main point that we're the soul, that, uh, that people <laughs> are spirit and they are not matter, they're in matter. So that's a main point of the Gita. Um, the next, uh, the two other, you know, important components that make up the sort of essential package of spiritual understanding are, so it, spiritual understanding consists of understanding who we are, or at least categorically understanding what we are, you know, uh, in a, at least in some general way, um, understanding, and then the next, you know, most important part is understanding the supreme self. So understanding the individual self, understanding the absolute or supreme self that we are part of. And then the third component that's important is understanding the, 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 
the, the relationship between the two. And that's really what the Gita is about. It's about, you could say it's the sort of science, the spiritual science of the relationship between the individual soul and, this, and, the, super, and the super soul, the, the giant soul, the great soul. Pardon me just a second. I'm just gonna close this. Um, thank you. So uh, that's really what's going on in the Gita. There's a lot of other particulars presented, but they're all to be understood as serving the purpose of um, supporting and uh, maintaining and nurturing the, the relationship between the individual soul and the supreme soul. And that's what bhakti, that's what the, you know, the Gita's, the Gita talk, in the Gita, there's a, there are different types of yoga discussed, but the Gita is known as being a bhakti text. Bhakti meaning simply devotion. There's more to that term, but that's what it comes down to. That's how it's commonly translated, bhakti, devotion. So bhakti. Why, yeah. why, why is that um, uh, important or notable that it's known for being a bhakti text? Well, um, there are different ways to answer that. It's, uh, what I, I guess one way to answer it is that they're in, in the, in the, vast collection of texts that are Vedic, that are yogic, they're not all as clearly, they're not all as explicitly or, you know, it's not, a, the bhakti element is not as obvious in all of the texts. So there are Vedic texts that really focus on the relationship between people and, and demigods like Kali or Ganesh or Shiva or Brahma where the aim is to, the aim of those texts is to give people, is to inform people about how they can get the benefit, material benefits. A lot of times the emphasis is on how they can benefit materially from pleasing that particular gotcha. person. So, yeah, so the Gita, it, you know, is, yeah, it, what it's offering is, in contrast to that, here what's not being emphasized is what your, your the material benefit, the temporary material benefit. What's being emphasized is the eternal uh, spiritual benefit. That being said, there are definitely notes and tones, and there there are definitely pieces of the discussion where there appear to be, where it appears that there that Krishna is giving credibility is validating certain material you know, uh, aspirations as well. I mean, he, he tries to persuade Arjuna in the direction of spiritual understanding by, um, you know, telling him that initially, like when Arjuna is, what set, you know, as you may know, what sets the stage for their discussion is Arjuna doesn't want to fight in this mm -hmm. battle. And that's really out of character for him. It's his duty to fight in that society, his job, that was his job. So he's basically saying, I'm not going to do my job. And so, you know, part of Krishna's appeal to him to change his outlook is on the basis of how bad it's going to make him look, you know, uh, to not do his duty. And, you know, so looking bad because you're not doing your duty, that's not, a, that's not really a concern for somebody who's actually transcendently self-realized. And that's a point that's made in various ways elsewhere in the Gita and certainly in other 
bhakti texts, the whole the idea is that a person who's established in their relationship, who is awake to their relationship with Krishna, who's awake to their relationship with the super soul in their heart, that person doesn't have no duty to perform. It doesn't, feels no obligation to perform any material duty for a material purpose. The idea is they still do their duties, but they're not doing it under the, under the burden of worry of like, how will it look if I don't do it? You know, what if, they're not doing it based on material calculations. They do it, they're doing it, you know, with a spiritual, you could say spiritual calculation. That's the idea anyway. Okay. Um, so I don't know, did that? Yes, uh, very much. The, um, the, the difference in the how to please the gods to get prosperity, there's other things too, but the prosperity was the one that came to mind is, yeah. um, and I don't know how you please Kali, but you want to please her so she doesn't take your hands. That's all I know. What was the last part? So she doesn't take your hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm well, obsessed. That's my thing. I'm obsessed. Well, you know, the, I also just I'll add that because all the demigods, all the devas and davies, mm -hmm. you know, are understood to be their parts. They're, they're, as we all are, we're all understood to be parts and parcel of Krishna. Sure. So the idea is that if you, you know, by cultivating bhakti, you also are pleasing Kali. You're also pleasing... Mm -hmm. Shiva, you're pleasing. It's like if you water the root of a plant, yeah, it, it, it gets distributed to all the branches and leaves and fruits. So that's the idea is that it's one stop. The Gita is basically offering a kind of one stop shopping for this person who's wanting to do everything right, you know, spiritually and religiously and even materially, of course, with their life. And, and that I think also, you know, we have to also, I, I, while it's a timeless text, it, I think it's, it's very helpful for, I found it very helpful for me to understand it also as part of his, of a historical cultural context, what, you know, and certainly, um, you know, academic scholars study Mahabharata and Vedic texts and Gita as being, you know, cultural artifacts, historical documents that tell you something about the people and their and the concerns of those people at a certain place at a certain time on earth, uh, regardless of whatever the, the sort of um, metaphysical claims may be, there, there's something being, we're being shown something, there's something on evidenced uh, about the culture that it came from. So yeah, there's a way in which the Gita is understood by scholars as being, you know, as being a development in Hindu thought, as being a development in the thoughts of that culture. And what we see in the Gita is a kind of a, of a distillation uh, of earlier um, Hindu, you know, uh, so-called Vedic thought. Um, yeah, and, and that's really also what I like about it is to me, it, it, it's, I mean, I've read different Vedic texts and there's something I like about all of them, but there's a way in which there's kind, kind of a, there's a lot here in a relatively small, um, and, it's, and it's relatively manageable uh, package. Mm -hmm. And in that, you know, in that regard, I would also, I was gonna say earlier that, um, you know, I also have, well, I actually probably have more than five copies <laughs> um, <laughs> and haven't read them all, but, um, you know, the a lot of times, it, you you might you could 
one way to start reading it is just read the verses mm -hmm. and don't take on if if you have version if the versions you have you know have an introduction and then have commentary uh you can just you know you could do a, uh, an initial reading that's just the verses oh that's a good idea and then that doesn't really take very you can actually read all 700 verses if you did it at one sitting if you did it one sitting, that's probably something like <laughs> three hours. But the point is, it's not. It's not very. It's not really a lot of of material mm -hmm. when it's just the Sanskrit seven hundred verses. So maybe it's less daunting that way. I mean, the idea with the commentary is that it obviously is supposed to make it easier to understand what's mm -hmm. what's happening. So, um, all right, yeah. So we have. So back, you know, so back to the, the um, uh, analysis of the Gita. So, all right, we have these base, these main uh, topics of the soul, the supreme soul, and the relationship between the two. And what also comes in to uh, um, the relationship between the soul and the supreme soul is the relationship between us, the individual souls, the supreme soul, and matter. Matter is another main topic of the Gita. It's another main topic of the Vedas. And that's it. I mean, that, that's really what it all comes down to is the individual self, the absolute self that it's a part of, their the relationship with each other, and as part of that, the role of matter, the role of material energy in that in that whole relationship, the role of matter in the relationship between the individual soul and the supreme soul, mm. and so to to summarize the role of matter, uh, it's it's understood as being a divine energy. Matter is a divine energy. It's an energy uh, or a shakti, to use the Sanskrit term, of God. It's one of the um, infinite, um, uh, you could say products uh, or um, emanations that come from the supreme, in the supreme origin. Um, and uh, so it's a divine energy. We have a relationship with it, which is, um, uh, uh, influenced by, or which is deter, which is informed by, our relationship with matter is ba is what it is because we are composed as souls in such a way that um, we have a, a natural relationship with both matter and spirit, and mm. while that that particular point isn't um, isn't elaborated on in an, in an overt way in the 700 verses that of the Gita it's it is elaborated on in other texts that are part of the tradition that yeah that that aim to explain things further and so there's a term that's again it's not in the Gita directly to my knowledge in the Sanskrit but the 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 term that comes into play here is uh, Tatasta Shakti. So Shakti, again, you know, as I 
mentioned a couple of minutes ago that matter is a, an energy or a Shakti. Shakti, one translation of Shakti is um, energy. And the, so a Shakti is like, a Shakti is a, yeah, it's, a, um, it's an energy or a potency of, uh, of God, of Bhagavan. Bhagavad, by the you know by the way the the title Bhagavad Gita is Gita means song and Bhagavad is uh, from the word Bhagavan Bhagavan is you know is translated as God it means technically Bhagavan means uh, one who possesses all opulences um, and those opulences are uh, strength knowledge, uh, beauty, wealth, fame, and renunciation. So that's an, another uh, uh, Vedic analysis of, uh, you know, there's a lot of these kind of things that where things are broken down into some number, <laughs> some number sure. uh, of items. So Bhagavan is the possessor of all opulences. Essentially, it means God or the source. Those opulences are strength, fame, beauty, wealth, knowledge, and renunciation. But the idea is that everything that we would consider to be an opulence is the basic idea is that the origin of, the, of, of it all, the origin of all those things that we see value in, uh, that we experience value in, that origin is ultimately a singularity. And that singularity in Sanskrit, one of the ways of referring to that is Bhagavan. Well, what do we mean by renunciation yeah yeah that's that's a good question um that also used to yeah I, I wondered about that also like so we're talking about god i get it all strength owns everything wealth fame, you know whatever but the renunciation one was was uh, a little more puzzling um and uh in, in the hindu vedic culture renunciation you know what i'm understanding here is that renunciation to this, to the audience that was presented with these teachings, renunciation was something that was seen as being. I mean, in one sense, it's a, it's seen as being a, um, like in India, like the famous people are like Gandhi. He he gave things up. He was a renunciate. Um, it's not always the case that the people who are esteemed are renunciates, but for some reason in that culture. It's like a really, it's a really big thing. Like they really, like if you're, if you yourself are a religious person or dressed in the garb of someone, if you're recognizable in, I haven't been to India in a couple of decades. I assume it's still the same way, at least in certain places. But if you, if you're presenting yourself as a person on the spiritual path, many people will show outward respect for that. Um, it's just part of the culture. So, you know, what That's I think- different than inward respect? Well, I mean, you'll, <laughs> uh, it, well, it could be. Yeah, well, the way <laughs> so, you said it made me think maybe, you know. Yeah, well, that's, I, I didn't, I wasn't uh, saying it fully conscious, I mean, with conscious emphasis on the contrast between internal and external. That is a good point. There are people who will culturally show the outward respect and they, and they may not be, have, they may not, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would demonstrate the best intentions if you got to know them, I don't know, but presumably with a lot of people, it's both. Um, but what I just mean to say is that to my, to my surface, to my vision, when I was in India, you, I could see, you know, it, I could see evidence of, of 
you know, respect for, regard for uh, symbols of renunciation. Sim you know, uh, Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that the idea that Bhagavan is the possessor of all these things, including renunciation, you know, is, is partly a way of making, uh, you know, conveying to the audience how everything that, you know, we all would think of as being great is found in its ultimate uh, quantity in, in the source, in the Supreme Being. But the idea also is that, I mean, the, but it's not just that. I don't think it's just a, a sort of, it's not just advertising, like God is great, so he's, and you like renunciation, so God is renounced. If there's also the idea that, you know, to unpack it a little bit more, there is this idea, and it's also expressed in various ways, even in the Gita, but there is this idea that the Supreme Being isn't, is everywhere and everything is in him. Um, at the, but at the same time, he remains above it. He remains aloof from it, not mm. attached to it. Which isn't to say that the Supreme Being is, is, is presented as being uncaring about it. So it's kind of this paradox where the Supreme Being is, cares about everything, but also mysteriously is not, uh, is not anchored by or is not limited to um, is not defined exclusively by anything that um, comes from from it from him. Right. Um, so there's that. That's the idea. Is that there is this element of there's this um, this aboveness or this beyondness, and that's what renunciation is kind of uh, a stand-in for hmm. in this list. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so matter, so yeah, I was saying that the so the soul is understood, uh, the jiva, to use a Sanskrit term, uh, is understood to be naturally, natural, by, by design, um, inclined to both matter and spirit. Um, so we're a particular shakti, a particular energy that is the, the, the tatasta part of that term, tatasta shakti, the tatasta Part of it refers it means essentially like a beach so the idea is that uh the beach by the ocean is land but it's also at least a certain part of the beach when the tide is high when the tide comes in it covers it covers the beach the beach is at that point it's ocean you consider it part of the ocean when it's in what you know when it's under the water when the water recedes it's it's function, you know, it's understood as part of the land. So that the idea is that the soul is naturally at this kind of margin um, in the sort of ultimate scheme of things. And we're at this margin between matter and spirit at our very, in our very innermost comp composition. <laughs> and so when we associate with, when we're, when we're uh, associating with basically, or when we're, um, immersed in, to, to try to use, uh, to keep it connected somehow to the ocean idea, when we're immersed in spiritual life, spiritual activity, our spiritual nature, uh, our spiritual side comes to the fore. And that's natural for us. So, you know, one thing to interpret from that or take from that is that even if it's seen, you know, for, for someone who, if we're trying to help someone, if we're trying to, let's say, counsel someone who's, 
going through whatever difficulty in life and we're trying to do it in a way that if we're trying to help them with some spiritual elements then we and it might seem like you know if it seems like wow i don't know how this is this person's going to connect to this it can help if we understand even if it's just theoretical that but if we consider that well there is this idea that every single living being every single soul has a spiritual side it's there even though they don't know it's there and even though i'm having a hard time seeing it um I'm going to go with the assumption that it is actually there, and that can end up making a difference when you, you know, when you. I, I mean, I, I feel I've had that experience myself, in, um, where I, I've been able to be more helpful to someone because I'm able to reference this, you know, this idea that no, it's a soul, and that soul has a relationship with spirit, even if they, whether they recognize it or not, whether they even want to you know, address it as that or not. Um, anyway, so there's a possible practical application of this understanding. But anyway, back to the Gita, what you see here in, in sum uh, is a, um, you know, a, 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 a it, you know, the Gita is a, is a study, it's an examination of, it's a particular case study uh, that has, that the conclusions of which can be extrapolated to our own lives, but it's a case study of this one individual, Arjuna, his relationship with matter and spirit. <laughs> and, and in his particular case, in the course of this discussion um, that he has with uh, Krishna before this battle, um, he, in this relatively short time, is brought back to his spiritual senses, so to speak. He's brought back to uh, recognize, seeing what he, he's, he it's not, this, is, this is not his first He's not newly introduced to, to any of these ideas. Any, none of the main ideas were new to him. He had just lapsed into a state of consciousness where he couldn't bring the, he couldn't bring them uh, yeah. into play. So uh, Krishna basically rekindled that in the course of this discussion. And then what became clear to Arjuna was his. Then what he was able to do was he was able to function materially without it having a material effect. And that's, and that's one of the, another kind of main teaching of the Gita, another main theme of the Gita is how to be in the world without being of the world, how to function without having your actions cause karmic reaction. The, one of the big concerns of this culture was how to purify ourselves from karma, how to get out of this karmic action reaction cycle which is theoretically endless and it's binding and it's and it, it's it's a it's in that sense it's prison like it's we're it's uh, we're trapped in it and so it was a big spiritual philosophical concern for the thinkers certainly in that culture too it was a riddle to solve you could say um how do we how do we you know how do you get out of karma how do you get free how do you set the stage to not take birth again in the material world how do you go to the spiritual world? How do you achieve mukti or liberation? Or another, you know, how do you achieve nirvana? You know, how do you solve the problems of life permanently, you know? So, yeah, so the Gita is, that's what's going on in the discussion also is this, in various ways, this elucidation on how to perform activity, perform work. Karma literally means action or work. 
Um, it implies reaction, but it, like the term karma yoga, which is the title of the, um, what is that? The, the, well, the fifth chapter and the third chapter both are, have karma yoga as part of their title. In that case, karma yoga means the yoga of work. It doesn't mean the yoga of action and reaction. It's not referring to karma as that whole package. It just in this basic sense, karma means work. And karma yoga means to, yeah, to, to have your, to work in a way that, to work with a, an inner understanding that makes your work yoga, that makes your, your, your work um, uh, a link uh, or a um, connection um, point that makes your, that makes our activity a connection point uh, between us soul, as the soul and, and the Supreme soul. It's okay. You can use the word yoke. We're all programmed to say it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I appreciate your synonyms, but I know, I know I've been brainwashed. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a relief. Yeah. Yeah. You can just use it. It's fine. So, um, yeah, and so, th so that's another really relevant, you know, practical thing in the Gita uh, to draw from. Uh, and, I, and the way, you know, the way it's, the way it's pursued in, in the temple and by people who take temple-like, um, who, who live their life outside of the temple as, you know, very much as if they're living in a temple, you know, making the connection between what you do in this world and God is often pursued and you could say achieved by means of ritual performances. So like there's a verse in the Gita where Krishna says, you know, there are a number of verses that deal with the effect of food on us. So the idea is that if you eat food, but it's not first offered as a sacrifice, if it's not first offered, mm. then that food um, has a material effect. It, it, it reinforces bondage in the material world. It reinforces forgetfulness of the spiritual identity and the spiritual relationship. But if food is offered, then it's purified and it, it basically becomes part of the package of yoga. Uh, it connects you, it yokes you. Um, <laughs> So, but it's not just with food. So yeah, the, the sort of, uh, the sort of, um, in India, what one sees is a lot of the, the sort of ritual landscape of India is that's really what's going on. It's this, it's the outwardization of really something that's ultimately an inner thing, meant to be an inner thing. The offering of anything, food or otherwise, um, is an inner thing. Like with Arjuna on the battlefield, like after they have this discussion, the Gita doesn't take us into what happens next. I mean, we're out of the Gita by the time we get to the, to the actual, at the end of the Gita, the battle begins and that part of the Mahabharata describes battle. So what you see Arjuna and others doing is just fighting, you know? And so it doesn't really look like, there's, there, there is no practice in the temple and, and I, or in any of the temples that I lived in there's no point at which there's a practice that 
outwardly resembles what Arjuna was doing on the battlefield. They don't, there's no reenactment of slaughter, or there's there, you know, and the idea is that Arjuna is offering everything. What he's doing, order you could say ordinary warrior act, five thousand year, you know, ago warrior activity. Outwardly, um, it's an it's an offering because he's doing it in a state of heart and mind. You mean after like twelve thousand hours of of a, of a convincing speech? <laughs> he he's he's yeah he's all lit up on that. All and, right. <laughs> and so so uh, yeah. So uh, does he live? He does. Okay. Good. He he is one of the five survivors at the end. Okay. But, Everyone else on both sides is on to the next adventure, but they uh, in some other life. But Arjuna and his four brothers yeah. are the are the, the last the last men standing on the battlefield. They're not the last people on Earth. It was there, there were there were no civilian casualties. It was you know um, uh, it was just you know certified warriors who who engaged in it. That's the way it's presented. Mm. Um, they checked IDs, obviously, upon entry. Apparently so. Yeah. 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 Is it? Can I ask? Is there any symbolism in uh, in the five and the fact that there's five, or is it just that he had four brothers? Well, the, there are in the you know in the tradition I studied in, it's that there's no emphasis given to the symbolism of that, but there are. You know, there are other interpretations of the Gita and the Vedas in general <clears throat> that are more symbolic. And so I, I, I think maybe I've heard an interpretation where, oh, I don't know if it's the five senses, the five, the five brothers or- Or five fingers or, no, senses sounds I, much I better. I haven't heard fingers. Yeah, probably not. But, but there are, you know, so, so yeah, so it doesn't. So uh, uh, you know, it doesn't. I don't have one. I don't have a good, uh, a stronger answer than that on that. Well, because obviously, if it were one hundred and eight, we would know what we're talking about. But you know. Yeah, yeah. There are other numer. Yes, there are. I thought you. So you you are a little numerical. Yeah, well, Amanda thinks I don't pay attention, but I when things confuse when I get curious about things, I I like delve in deep and you know oh it's a weird number but that's okay because i'm jewish and so 18 is our number which is also similar so mm -hmm. except yeah. for zero in the middle but you know it, well speaking of 18 and um kind of going in a little bit of a different direction oh in <laughs> from ancient judaism uh there have you ever heard of it was a book and then there was a movie called the legend of bagger vance Yes. Bill Smith was in it, and I can't, and it, maybe Matt. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. that's the the author of the book that the movie was based on is basing the story on the Gita. Really? Okay. So the, eight, so the eighteen chapters are in some way analogous to the eighteen holes of golf, the golf course. And I'm not into the golf course. I'm into, but but oh yeah, I, I knew that about that movie. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. What'd you say, Amanda? <laughs> I never knew that about that movie. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I haven't seen it. I almost want to in the hopes that it will explain the Gita more. It was a nice movie. Yeah. Um, um, can I ask a question? Yeah, please. Yeah. I came up earlier. Are yeah. there any foods you're not supposed to offer before you eat? Well, um, the, the, pardon me for a second. I'm not going to answer the phone, but it is ringing. <laughs> okay. I'll ring a couple more times if you hear it's it. Fun. You could answer it. Put them on speaker. Well, actually, if this person is calling, it would be, it could be good. Uh, but um, we have, yeah, good discussions that could relate. But in the Gita, it's, in the verses of the Gita, uh, all Krishna says to Arjuna is, if one offers me with love and devotion, a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water, I will accept it. So, <laughs> so the idea is that it's really simple stuff. And that's stuff that like even the poorest person could come up with one or another of those items, you know, in, in that culture, a leaf, flower, fruit, or water. Now that generally, there's no mention. Yeah. Sounds pretty vegan. It's very, yeah, that's what I was thinking too, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no mention of dairy, surprisingly, uh -huh. because it, Krishna is I know, so- they love milk too, and like cows beer and, and milk. But he does, but there's no no mention of it there. It's vegan. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's extrapolated to mean, yeah, preparations that involve yeah, leaves, leaf vegetables and and fruits, flowers like broccoli, cauliflower. Uh, and, you know, so but no roots. Well, not mentioned there, yeah. Well, you kill the whole plant when you pull the root out, right? So yep. So it's like anything that was not really harmful to anyone. Yeah. That's the, that would be considered the diet of the sages. You know, they, they would, there are, yeah. I mean, I think there are people, who, you know, I think even in the, even in the tradition or some part of the, some branch of the tradition of, you know, Krishna consciousness, I think there are some, there may be some people who also don't, yeah, who don't use roots. Um, you know, Who's some- Jains, right? Am I pronouncing that right? Gains, Jains? Oh, Jains. But that's not Hindu, is it? Well, they're ca they're often categorized separately, but they are um, they're, they're they are distinct. Their their founder is Mahavir, mm -hmm. and just like Buddhism is is considered distinct from Hinduism, but it's it's derived from the the founders are from that culture. I don't remember if Mahavir, I don't remember what his 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 background exactly was, but mm -hmm. you know, but some root vegetables are annuals like carrots. Mm. Carrots, to my knowledge, are not perennial. And if they just keep growing in the ground, they'll just, there's a yeah. point that I, I don't know how, I have a limit with my experience with growing carrots, even though I'm a gardener by profession. Yeah, but, Lindsay, he's um, a horticulturist as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a history of killing um, plants. <laughs> not on purpose, just I'm a bad gardener. Well, gardeners, you know, we do end up, yeah, there, there are, you do end up, yeah, the killing plants ends up happening also. Oh. Well, weeds, you know, and. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but like, I just realized I never took my carrots out of the ground. <laughs> well, they'll go to seed. Maybe you'll make them more carrots next year. Is that, what, is that what you mean, Madame? Like they go to seed and then that's it. Yeah, some plants complete their life cycle in, in one year. And so there's no, it's not a perennial root. Um, there are some potatoes that perennialize and I and most potatoes or all potatoes are from the Andes. They're, they're historically, they 
There are many different kinds of potatoes, so many different colors and shapes and sizes, like, like hundreds of different kinds, different colors that they I think they still grow in the Andes, in the Andean mountains. But um, there, there are some that will perennialize in the Northeast of the United States where even, you know, they'll survive freezing, but, but not all do. So when you harvest, you know, if you're harvesting root vegetables that are at the end of their natural life, you know, that, that also could be a um, legitimized, I guess you could say, or, you know, there's a way in which I that- I can offer that to Krishna. You know, the mercy killing? <laughs> what was that, Lindsay? I asked if it was a mercy killing. Uh, the idea anyway, is that <laughs> any killing, right. has, there is a karmic reaction, even if it's yeah. vegetarian. So this is, this is why this offering part of the, of the whole pra of the tradition is considered to be so important that even if you're vegetarian, if, you're, if the food isn't offered, which is really what Krishna is saying in the Gita, that any food that's not offered, it binds you still. It may be good for you physically. It may be the lesser of evils in terms of dietary options. It may just be very good, but it may not, but it doesn't go all the way to being spiritually enlightening and to the maximum degree that food can be. That's, that's, so you should offer all the food. Yeah. Or, um, yes. Okay. Yeah. But it's better to offer the leaf, the, the flower, the water. Okay. Thank you for answering my question. Yeah. Oh, okay. So when, when, when you're saying offer all food, you mean even non-vegetarian things? No. I, I don't know. Okay. Well, in like in the temple, in a Krishna temple, you can't, you can't, you can't formally offer, well, you could. Uh, and I actually think I know someone who, I knew this very eccentric person, but uh, you're not supposed to mm -hmm. offer, offer anything that's not vegetarian, you know, uh, in the temple or, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, Kali worshipers sacrifice animals uh, to the goddess Kali. There's an, so they're, they're offering, I don't really know, I don't know their full conception when they're doing that. I don't, I don't know how much it's, I don't know in, if, how similar and different it is to offering vegetarian food to Krishna. But there is, uh, there, my understanding is that there are animal sacrifices. There definitely historically in Vedic culture were animal sacrifices. The idea is that Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, known as Buddha, was an incarnation of Krishna whose specific purpose was to put a check on the animal sacrifices that were going on 2,500 years ago. Hmm. Uh, under the leadership of the Hindu Brahmins at that time. So animal sacrifice has, in various forms is, is definitely part of the Hindu Vedic culture. Um, but anyway, so yeah. You, I'm trying so hard not to dominate this conversation and let you talk about the Gita, but now, see, this is what goes on whenever I see Madonna. Well, so I've heard Raghu and um, Kastubas talk about how it's like a it's like a misinterpretation of the time of Kali Yuga that they think they're killing, like the horse sacrifice is actually like they're giving the horse like a fresh baby body or something like that. Like you see the horse transform. Well, the, <laughs> it was like a whole other thing though. Well, the sacrifice part of the Vedas is understood to be in a previous age. Right, like we're doing it wrong now, essentially. So Buddha came to, was Buddha in Kali Yuga? Uh, y yes. Yes, okay. Buddha, yeah, Buddha is, about 2,500 years ago, okay. Jesus about 2,000 years ago, 
Muhammad about 1500 years ago. Mm -hmm. that was, yeah, that's the high, sort of hierarchy of dates. Um, right, continue here's, now. Here, Wait, here's, no, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, go. I have, no, I finish your, your thought because mine is, yeah. I just want to say that while non-vegetarian food offering is not being directly spelled out, advocated for in the Gita, Krishna does say whatever you eat, whatever you offer, and whatever you give away, do as an offering or as a sacrifice unto me. The principle is that whatever you do, you know, you try to do it with spiritual intention. And if there's some reason why, like, I was going to say, if there's some reason why a person needs to eat meat, then of course they should do it in a way which is as spiritually maximal as, as possible. You shouldn't think, well, it's not the ideal thing. So I'm just going to just, I'm not going to do it at all. I'm not going to connect it at all. And the example that leapt to mind, and, and then I'll, I'd like to hear what you were going to say, um, a sort of related example, Prabhupada Bhaktivedanta Swami uh, had, was sending, um, just one example, he was sending a, a student of his to Russia back in the, I guess this must have, I don't know if it was late 60s or 70s, early 70s. He's sending one of his students to Russia to try to see if they could start something with Krishna consciousness there. And this student said, you know, I expressed concern about what he'd be able to eat when he was there. Mm. And, and Prabhupada said, if you know, if you have to eat meat, eat meat. So the idea is that if the, the, the bigger, in the bigger picture of your, the idea is to offer your whole life. Uh, and, and really, and really, you know, you can only offer something when you think it's yours in the first place, right? So in the beginning, we're practicing offering things leading up to the idea that I'm offering my whole self. Further down the line, what, what occurs, at least what occurred to me is that I can't really even, I can't really even offer myself because it's, it's not, because the fact is we already belong to, we already belong to Krishna. We already belong to the source. So when we don't recognize that, then the idea is take the things that you think are yours and the next step is to offer them. And then some, you know, it's like the beginning of, uh, it's like a step towards it's moving you in the right direction. Okay, this is mine. I'm going to offer it. But what what ultimately dawns on on the you know, on the applied mind, you know, along the way is that what am, this isn't even mine to offer. I'm not even. I don't own myself. I don't supply myself with a single breath. It's all supplied to me. So really, what we end up offering is this recognition that I belong. We all, we're, that's what we're offering is this willing, voluntary, heartfelt enthusiastic recognition that, yeah, I, I am a belonging. So automatically everything that's mine, you know, is, is owned by that which owns me. So if we operate with that understanding, then really whatever we do is sort of subsumed into, I don't, I think that may be the right word, is ends up just being offered implicitly. But the idea is that to get to that state where we're awake to that consistently, we practice formal, external, ritualistic, to one degree or another, even if it's simple, um, offerings of things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so- So Amanda, you could have kept those mala beads. What, what's that? To, it, it, <laughs> to Amanda? 
It was better. I gave him away. It was the right thing. It was good karma. <laughs> no, but it wasn't because you failed to recognize that which already something. Where are you? She's leaving me. She's done with me. I'll be right back. My husband's calling me. I'll be right back. Well, what? Okay, so can I ask you my question? So how come... Okay, so why all the incarnations of... I know that I don't know how to quite voice it. It's just yeah, yeah. What's up with all that, right? Well, that would sound good. Yeah, I'm. I'm I can speak a little better than that, but yeah, because I it just gets me perplexed. Like, why couldn't they have just made them different people? Well, they are in one sense. I mean, the well, maybe I understand, but like an incarnation, you know. I don't know. It confused me. Okay. Uh, well, here there's different. Here's one possibility. I mean, what the way it's understood in the tradition that I studied in that is um, that, well, first of all, the idea is that there are unlimited forms of God, unlimited. Literally, there are forms that no one knows in, you know, on earth and no one will ever know. They're, they're more than can be known. So the, the, the incarnations that are described are really just like a drop in the bucket. It's just, right. so it could be understood as it's a way of, of suggesting this, um, you know, the, the pointing the, the mind in this direction that God ha has, you could say can assume uh, any form or, uh, you know, endless forms. I'll just clarify though, that in the tradition, it's not understood that these are forms that are assumed. The understanding is that each of these forms that we would call incarnations, they're at least, well, they're different categories of incarnations, but the ones that are considered to be fully in the category of God are eternal. They're not, they're not, they didn't, they, they those forms exist eternally. Those forms have, have, um, you know, exist in, in the spiritual realm. Uh, and there are, souls that have a relationship with each of those forms eternally like there are like there are people there are souls who are eternally devotees of ram or there are souls that are eternal devotees of uh korma who is the tortoise incarnation it does not sound like a good incarnation to get <laughs> <laughs> well this is in this case it's like you know it's the it's the, korma is the tortoise form of god the idea also i is, got it but still like you gotta get the tortoise like oh, okay <laughs> well the, the idea is that every single form um that exists in this world the prototype the prototypical stuff that any material form comes from is in the source so tortoiseness has its origin in the origin and carrotness originates in, in in the supreme origin so in, in 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 the origin in the original form of these things you know any of what we would consider to be the downside is understood to not exist for the you know the, the supreme carrot is you know enjoying life as you know as briefly <laughs> as, uh, as, a, as a god gotcha so, so that's okay. one way to, you know, that's one way to sort of um, uh, understand it. Sort of move in the direction of, of looking at the incarnations. 
they also fit into different, you know, they, each time there's been an incarnation, it's a response to some, something that's going on bad. So that's a much better answer. Why didn't you get that answer first? I'm figuring out as I go along, you know? Okay. Okay. Um, kind of winging it here. No, no, no. You're doing, you're winging it. You do you, I thought this was like your shtick. It is, but it, I, my, winging it is part, is what I, it's part of the shtick too. Yeah. Mine too. So, um, so it's in response to something bad. You, well, each incarnation that, that when you, in the stories that describe the incarnations, they're always appearing to defeat some embodiment of evil in the world. So, like Kali it, and Durga. Well, Durga is good. <laughs> oh, Durga, no, Durga is good, but Kali can, I really like the story, so. <laughs> yeah, well, like, you know, like there's always some, there's always some demonic element that the, each incarnation is, up against. And so the idea is that it's it's considered Leela, it's considered divine play. Mm. And like God is playing and enjoys, the idea is that God enjoys playing these different roles and engaging in these different challenges and always coming out victorious. And there's some way in which there's a pleasure that God experiences. There's a way in which the bad guy in each of these scenarios also enjoys it and benefits spiritually and then the idea is that the individual small jiva souls that are in some way you know witness to it they experience you know some kind of you know uh revelatory ecstatic you know rapture in 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 witnessing it um that's how it's presented um but they didn't have smartphones back then so well supposedly they had <laughs> the um, enhanced ability to uh, communicate. Yeah, and do everything they wanted, fine, okay. Or telepathically, yeah. Yeah, fine. Or, yeah, like even the Gita is being narrated, like the way it's presented is that uh, Sanjaya is describing what's going on on the battlefield to, right. to Dhritarashtra, the blind king. So Sanjaya isn't himself, he's seeing it by a kind of, psychic sure television you yes. know and he's and and Ritterostra, who's who's you know you know who's physically blind is also seeing it through this kind of you know inner yeah technology that's the idea um uh, I, I lost track of time uh do, does you do, is a break do you need a break does anyone need a Use a bathroom, have drink something, do something. If so, don't hesitate. Um, I'm good. Uh, so I'll just keep going if uh, some more, if you're ready. Uh, are there any questions? Any? I would like to know if Frank is still alive. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I was wondering too. Yeah, I know. It's weird. Yeah. He only does it the second half of the class. He doesn't do the first half. Of the class, so I study him a lot. So. The, the, the mysteries of Frank. The mysteries of Frank. Well, yeah. Uh, oh, I also want to know how you know it's time to re leave an ashram. Do they just kick you out? <laughs> uh, well, that that does happen. Um, but no, you you have to. Uh, you, you, you have to, it, it's your choice. 
it's your choice. You might make that choice, and you might make that choice in consultation with others. But um, no, there, no. In my time, there was no, there's no system for that. And 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 generally, it seemed like the idea was, every, you know, the the, the idea is, you know, just stay, <laughs> don't leave. Um, no, they need so, someone to handle the carrots and stuff. Obviously, for for sure. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, there there was no. Yeah, there was no real like yeah established program for graduating, um, yeah. but it happens. But it it, it just happens um, naturally. Mm. Interesting. I when I when I moved in, my you know my my feeling, I thought I was you know this is it. I'm I'm gonna be here for I, I'm moving in forever because uh, that's really what I I was at that point in that's where I was at it in, in life. You know, I I was. It was your only way to survive. Yeah. 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 But after, you know, after a while, I, I, re I just, I recognize, oh, I think, oh, I think I can handle, I can, I think I can take it with me. And, and I'd also gotten to a point where I felt like, well, this, you know, what's not really taught in these words, at least, it, you know, what, what wasn't really taught or emphasized is experience is the best teacher, mm -hmm. which has become, you know, which is something that I, say all the time now because it's evident to me that that's the case experience is the best teacher um so you know without using those words i, I guess i um so by the time i'm almost in my mid-20s i guess i'm just sort of instinctively sensing that there's more for me to experience in life that i haven't experienced yet that would that's missing that's in some ways missing from my personal development that's necessary in order for certain things I've learned now spiritually to really come to life further. So, hmm. you know, I, I, I personally just felt also, you know, I was living in a temple in Brooklyn. I wanted to, I, I love, you know, I, I was yearning to be out of the city and in Nate closer to nature. Wait, when you said ashram, I assumed you were. No, this was in Brooklyn on a paved student with, you know. I am very disappointed, I have to tell you the truth. Yeah, well. I thought this was like a concrete slab kind of thing. No, it's, well, underneath the building, yeah, there was a oh, okay. yeah. yeah. No, no, there was a, there were still, there was a, there was a way in which it was a different world inside of those walls, but it was, yeah, no, but there were still walls and plumbing and electricity, but, um, but there was still a degree, there were, there were definite, there was still a, mon, a monastic, there's still very much a, a monastic um, element to it. But no, it wasn't a full, it wasn't a cave. Oh, but you weren't like sweating to death and on like slabs of. Well, there were not, to, no, there was sweating sometimes. What kind of ashrams you hearing about, Lindsay? Okay, <laughs> I have a friend who is a yoga teacher who went and did one of these things, but she was also like a, you know, Anasora before, like right before the scan, whatever, anyways. Putting on a slab. Oh, Anasora is like tantric. They're tantricos, right? I don't know, but here's Their the- stuff is wild. She does everything in extremes. Mm. Like for example, once she told me, you know what I want to do when I want to lose weight? I just, I go on the brown diet, brown rice diet. I said, oh, what's that? She said, you just eat brown rice. Mm. I was like, um, yeah, I'm out. Nope, nope. So. So that's what I imagine, because that's the only other person oh. I know. <laughs> well, there's there's fasting. So the food is so good at the temples. Oh my gosh. 
The prashadam is like, that'll make you drive a really long way to go. Have <laughs> kirtan and prashadam, it's so good. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's Brooklyn. You're not driving a long way. <laughs> hey, it's long from Long Island, all right? Yeah, it, was, it was long from <laughs> It's the same as the temples in India inside. It's like the same exact thing. They do all the same rituals and they cook the same foods and they change. It's not a thousand. Okay, fine, whatever. Well, the idea also is that in bhakti, you're not trying to. There are there are ashrams, there are traditions, Hindu Vedic traditions where people are trying to. Yeah, just tor basically torture the body. Right. Yeah, and starve the senses. But the downside of that is that. What's the warning that comes with that is the heart can become hard. Yes. So for bhakti, what you're ultimately trying to do is arrive at this place where your you have where your heart is softened. You know, and so it's because it's about being in a relationship with the supreme heart and every and all other hearts along the way as well as that. So those more those more heavy renunciation paths are not bhakti they use the word bhakti still but their ultimate aim is to become one with god not to have a relationship but to become god basically and they believe that they are understanding is that to do that they have to completely unbecome anything material and, and you know it's questionable how the likelihood of the idea is that in kali yuga it's only a very rare person who might be able to take that that severe renunciation path to even its intended goal. And so bhakti is considered to be easier, though it still involves um, the challenge, the, 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 renunciate, the elements of renunciation for most people are still plenty challenging. There's still plenty, there's, a, there's still plenty of opportunity to you know, make those spirit over body <laughs> decisions mm. on the bhakti path, even with its, even with its uh, comforts, you know, even with the, even with the enjoyable parts of it. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And Amanda, did you have, so early, did you want to talk more at all or inquire more along those lines of offering? You were saying that, you know, you didn't want to take over the conversation but I would, I would well, I would welcome any further. Oh no, you covered yeah. the question. I think that you know, I think about that all the time. Every time I eat, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> if I have a vegetarian meal, I'll offer it. But you know, if I don't, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't really know what to do in this situation. So, yeah, yeah, Lindsay, my background that Madonna's aware of is I was vegetarian for like seven or eight years, and I was making myself very ill because of my constitution. I can't be vegetarian. So when I finally saw an Ayurvedic doctor, she was like you gotta eat the meat and I was just like a wreck over it I was so upset I, I couldn't even believe that like something from the Vedic tradition would say that I have to eat meat I said what do you, I thought we we're all supposed to be vegetarians we're yogis that doesn't make any sense and she's like you're making yourself sick your inflammation markers are so high you, you're, you're like pushing yourself towards autoimmune and like heart issues because I really felt terrible I not a single part of the story described surprises me yeah. So she said, no, you know, it, ahimsa has to include yourself. So you have to get over it and, you know, have some meat. And so the diet she recommended was very, very close to what my grandmother from Italy, you know, I mean, that's like what my body 
my parents are both Italian, you know, it's like what my body was raised on. So I just make sure that when I do it, I do it very consciously and I, I know the source and, you know, I don't do it a lot. And I'm trying to, you know, I try to slick as Madan said, so, you know, in the Native American way, like spiritualize it to the best of my ability. Cause I still, you know, I still have so much guilt to write. You know, I think to myself, why did I choose a constitution where I have to like accumulate so much bad karma? That doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> I don't think you choose your constitution. Huh? You choose your constitution? No, you choose your body, right? You're, or maybe it's just you're drawn to your body or you're, you, you're attracted from whatever past karma that you have. It pulls you into the form that you, take on so you know I just have questions for myself that's all it's my vata as a you know the vata vata my father and mother vata vata so I have to deal with the um you know to keep myself healthy and have enough energy to serve and to help others and like I've I don't know so yeah that's why that's why I was curious about that and I've I've messaged Madan about this as well seeking guidance so. yeah um... and to eat food <laughs> I <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, Judaism, they spiritualize it to the best of their ability, right? I mean, like they're chanting the name of God when they, right? That's what makes it kosher, I yep. guess. That's not the level of care in yeah, India. It's a prayer. It's, it's, I mean, it's a prayer, you know, like a rabbi has to bless it. So. Right, right. Like I'm saying, like they try to spiritualize it in some capacity, I guess. Yeah. I eat bacon. Judaism is influenced by yoga. I think it's all influenced by, you know, but yes. It was all in the like Fertile Crescent Valley. They were all hanging out together at some point and then they left. <laughs> they crossed the river, right? Well, the seas parted. You would have been silly not to, you know. Oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, regarding choosing the bo your body, you know, it, it's the way, you, I have, the way I understand it. And um, the way, you know, the way it's- I need a bathroom. As, as I've learned it, is that we're, we're we qualify. Hello. Say hi. 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 This is Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Hi. Hi. She's about to learn to skateboard, which means we'll probably have a broken bone in about an hour, right? Yeah, well, be careful. <laughs> have fun, be careful. Um, yeah, we're choosing it in a sense with the idea that we're, we, quali we qualify for a particular body by, now one way to put it is by our consciousness at the time of death in our present body. So, and that's there in the Gita in the form of, you know, whatever state you remember at the time you leave your body, that state you attain in your next life. But Wait, could you repeat that? Because so, I'm. Uh, yeah, it's a Gita verse. I'm. I'm sort of paraphrasing it. Um, I don't have it right. I'm not it's looking. Okay, it's straight. better for both of us that way. <laughs> okay, whatever state at the time of death, at the time that you leave that body that you're in, your consciousness that you, the consciousness that you have at the time of death, carries you to your next body. But that doesn't mean that you're specifically thinking of a particular what color your hair is going to be, what, this, what street you're going to live on. It just means there's a, there's a sort of a level of consciousness or a, an essential quality that corresponds to a type of situation to continue your journey from the next chapter. It's sort of similar. Thank you. Uh, it's sort of similar. 
Yeah. What'd you say? Well, that, that, that's the sort of conceptual parameter that, that's presented in the Gita, that there's a correlation, there's, there's a correlation between sort of quality or level of consciousness and the physical body situation that you take birth in. But it's not, it kind of, it kind of leaves it at that. It, there's still plenty of mystery as to exactly how it happens and how we end up exactly where we are. Um, well, that, I've heard the whole, we choose our parents idea. Um, it, would, it would be in this, it would be in this same way. Yeah. Qualify for your parents. <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> and a lot of, and, and what seems to be um, the case is that, you know, what we, in practical experience, we see like in the temple, different kinds of people end up living in the temple. You got people there who were raised, you know, spiritually, and you have people there who come from, you know, completely, you know, apparently no apparent spiritual influence, chaotic, mm. hellish, whatever background. So it really seems that different, all different kinds, you know, we might categorize all the different kinds of categories we might put different kinds of parents in. Uh, each can serve the, the can serve the, the spiritual purpose sufficiently. So it can be good for you spiritually. So if you make my point, you know, one way to elaborate on it is, so if you make a certain amount of advancement spiritually in this life, and this is also brought up in the Gita, what Arjuna asks Krishna, what happens, what's the fate of a person who doesn't complete their spiritual progress? And Krishna basically says they take, he says they take their next birth in a family of pious Brahmins or either uh, they take birth in, an, in a wealthy family or in a religious family. So those are the examples that he gives Arjuna. But in, in practical experience, a lot of people that, I, that, you know, end up on this path in this life, you know, come to it from also not wealthy or religious <laughs> uh, households. So, you know, it seems that really any situation can serve the, can, really any parent, you know, any situation can be the starting point, can serve, can, can serve to, uh, um, the purposes you know uh, uh, needed for a person to continue their spiritual journey. For us, the, the idea is really all of life is doing that. All of everything. The idea is that everything that exists exists for that purpose, for awakening, for moving people, or giving people reason to choose to move. Right. Spiritual direction. It's not forcing them to move that way, but it's providing them with reason to do so. Gotcha. Yeah. Still don't yeah. know if I like it, but okay. Yeah, well, I also, that was one of the things I set aside yep. when I w needed to do something with my life and this was <laughs> going to be that thing. But yeah, definitely what's surf resurfaced for me is why does it really have to be like this? You know, I, not my, my own life, you know, knock on wood is, is I'm not complaining about it, but seeing what, what some of the, uh, seeing all the horrible things, seeing horrible things certainly makes me question like, you know, how does this, how does this uh, reflect a loving God? And I know all the answer. I know all the, I can give the answer to that. I gave it for many years, you know, and there are justifications and they make a certain kind of sense, but, but there still is a mystery there. What, with, with God being understood as being capable of absolutely anything, mm. that, that means that the same effects that are achieved through the idea is that these horrible things that happen it's karma it's justice and ultimately the person who goes through it 
is is given an experience that contributes to their gradual awakening. It's not unjust. It's a response to it's karma. It's 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 justice. Still, the question is, if anything is possible, all that could still be achieved in a way that doesn't involve things that are to, that are just are hor that are horrific. Yep. yep. So that mystery remains, and, and I don't, and, and I no longer try to, you know, I no longer try to make any kind of justifications or explanations or excuse. Uh, to, to me, it's a mystery. Uh, and the Vedas also, while giving so many answers to so many things, I mean, one of the main teachings is that God is achintya. God is achintya, inconceivable, inconceivable. The, the, you know, all, what's being presented gives us some some uh, working conceptions, um, but we have to balance that with the understanding that it's just a little, it's a little, it's a little piece of the picture. And, you know, there's even the idea that, you know, the idea is there also that God is so inconceivable that God can, I don't know about can't, because that also violates the understanding that there's nothing that's impossible for God. But the idea is that God is ever increasing and ever expanding. And so there's also some way in which God is beyond even God to understand. There's a way in which, you know, could even God understands God's self and also doesn't, you know, there's some paradox there. Anyway, all of these things end up when they're pursued, you know, all these lines of thought lead, lead to mystery and paradox, um, inconceivability. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's all I that's all I got. <laughs> but the Gita, you know, in the little Gita world, in the little seven hundred verses, there's a nice there, there there's uh, there's an internal there's an there's a conceptual integrity. There's a you know it, there's it, there's all the you know it, it, as a unit, all the parts work in a very in a very uh, in a very pretty way. Uh, you know, there's a way in which the Gita works that that um, you know makes me feel that it's even you know if there even if there's a debate about okay is this literal history or is this just uh, uh, is this just a um, literary device employed by some great sage to teach people something it I there's a I have the feeling from the Gita that however that question is answered, that there's a way in which what I would call, what I would call divinity, there's a way in which it happened here. <laughs> there's a way in which divinity happened in the course of th this composition that we call the Bhagavad Gita. And, mm -hmm. that's, and that's enough for me. <laughs> you know, that, that works for me enough for, you know, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. So I agree. I don't think it needs to be. I don't know. I can. I. I don't think. I mean, it's. It's like offering something that's not. It's already part of what you're offering it to. So. That's right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm gonna. Uh, can you tell me what time it is? I just don't. I have my. Three thirty-four. So what, what was it? Three thirty-four. 234. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I just, there's one thing I want to go back to. Um, matter, the topic of matter and how it's dealt with in the Gita, very simply, 
two, there are two things I want to mention about matter in the Gita, at least to start with I'll, these two things. Matter is categorized as being an eightfold, an eight level thing, an eight level phenomenon. And it's and and these are the eight. These are the eight components that make up matter in Bhagavad Gita. Earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego. So Krishna says to Arjuna that these eight constitute my material energy. And they, and it's a list from the grossest to the subtlest from the most tangible to the most ephemeral. Earth, water, fire, they're getting subtler. They're getting more ephemeral. Earth, water, fire, air, ether. Ether is like understood as being, I think the Sanskrit term is mm -hmm. akash, like the akashic record. Mm -hmm. Ether is like subtler even than air. It's like the medium through which sound travels. And then even more subtle, mind. And more subtle than mind is buddhi, like Buddha, the Sanskrit word Buddha is related to the Sanskrit word buddhi. Buddhi means the faculty of discernment, the faculty of, of discrimination in a good way, mm -hmm. intelligence. And yet more subtle even than buddhi is ahankara, which is false egoism. And what that is, that's such an important part of the Gita and I find this so useful. False egoism, not just egoism, false egoism, which really means, which refers to, it's a, which is synonymous with material identity. So the sense of material identity is, takes place in or in relation to, or is enabled by our contact with this substance that's part of matter called ahankara or false ego. So we, the pure soul, identifies with ahankara. We, the nature of being conscious is that we can sort of lose ourselves in things that we project our consciousness at. We can watch a movie and forget who we are. We can read a book and time melts away. And some, on some ultimate uh, original level, our, our, our origin in the material, our, our presence in the material world is understood and or looked at in Vedic thinking as, be, as, as beginning with our choice to focus on or uh, focus on this substance of false ego, um, the subtle most component of matter. And that's what, that's what underlies our connection with the rest of matter. That's, what's that, that's the link, that's our link to matter um include you know ultimately including matter on the gross level on the tangible bodily level um so that's one way that matter is uh viewed in the gita and one other thing that's really huge in the gita is one huge topic is the three modes of material nature the three gunas Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, the three modes of material nature. And so, you know, understanding that concept is, is helpful 
you know, and, you know, it's really a big part of the Gita and it's a part of the Vedas in different, implicitly and explicitly, it's part, it's part of Vedic teaching in general. So the idea is that matter is, it's made of these eight elements, and, and, but it's also, I would say at a subtler level, at a subtler level, even then false ego, all these elements have some correlation to the three modes, but the three modes are basically, it's basically like, it's like God's thought <laughs> of what matter is. You know, it's just like, it's like the idea basically is that, and this is what uh, matter is essentially that the occurrence of the, uh, is the interaction between these three sort of principles of goodness, passion, and ignorance. And I, I see a connection, I've mentioned it probably in every of one of these talks for teacher training. I personally discovered a connection between that idea and the idea of the atom, the atomic, the atomic level of, of life, material life is also threefold. It's positive, neutral, and negative. It's you know, proton, neutron, electron. Matter is made of, even in you know, modern thinking, matter is made of these principles, these forces, whatever you want to call them, interacting, positivity, negativity, neutrality. So it's very much akin to the three gunas, the three modes of material nature. And, you know, so the Gita is, in the Gita we're taught about how to understand phenomena in terms of these three modes, how to understand what's in each mode or what, what, what mode predominates in each thing. The three modes are always mixed. So it's not that anything is, so a vegetarian still has, the, there's still the mode of ignorance element in vegetarian food. In meat, there's still the mode of goodness. The, one of the characteristics, now there are people who would say, what? Meat is ignorance. And even that's there in the Gita. Spicy food or whatever is in the mode of passion, wholesome, you know, vegetarian food is in the mode of goodness. But the Gita also teaches that the three modes are omnipresent together, always in everything. So how could that be? How could there be the mode of goodness in any measure, in any degree in meat? Well, one of the functions of the mode of goodness is maintenance. One of the symptoms, one of the things associated with the mode of goodness is sustenance or maintenance. And indeed, when you eat anything, if it's food and not, you know, outright kill you on the spot poison, or kill you, you know, 24 hours poison, you know, anything. It, I think it's we only were referring to cyanide, don't worry. I, I just, just want to be safe. Don't worry. So the, um, so you're being sustained, you're being maintained. The mode of, the mode of goodness is present in that way. Um, and there, there are other ways also to, to, you know, to analyze it and find ways in which the mode of goodness, you know, are, is, at, is at play in that. But the idea is that, it, you know, the mode of goodness is the mode, even though it's material, and this is a big point also, that mode of goodness is still material. So it's not just by being in the mode of goodness, you don't automatically achieve self-realization. You don't achieve release from the cycle of birth and death, samsara, you have to go beyond just the mode of goodness. But the idea is that the mode of goodness tends to be very helpful for spiritual progress. So, that, you know, like 
living in a peaceful place where you can concentrate. It's like the mode of goodness. A peaceful place is the mode of goodness, helps you concentrate. And if you then take that peaceful place to concentrate and you concentrate on spiritual things, then it all, then it all, it's all working together. You know, it's all working synergistically together in, in the, the maximal way. If you're in a place which is distracting and, you know, it, it doesn't uplift you and you're, you know, it's hard, it may be hard. It's going to tip for most people. It's going to be harder to focus and so on and so forth. Anyway, there are endless ways to, to analyze it and illustrate it, but that's the gist of it. So matter is, yeah, matter is the three modes of material nature combined. And it's also understood as this earth, water, fire, air, ether, gross matter, mind intelligence and false ego, subtle matter. Now there are some scholars, I would say, you know, ac regular university academic uh, scholars who will say that these different ideas that we have in the Gita, different, different ways of explaining matter, different ways of explaining yoga and other things are a reflection of the different predominant understandings in the culture that this came from at that time. And there's a way in which the author is trying to achieve a synthesis of ideas and bring all of it towards possibly, I mean, I think some scholars say that the emphasis on bhakti was a development historically. Uh, it was a move away from the emphasis on ritual and sacrifice mm. to personal, it was a move away from, or in one sense, a move away from hierarch, hierarchical organized religious practice to personal inner, you know, cultivation. You can offer a leaf, flower, fruit, and water. You don't have to, you don't have to go to the next public, you know, um, ritual event or whatever. All those, you know, I mean, uh, both exist side by side. So, but anyway, there's, there are ways that, the, there are different ways of analyzing what's going on, you know, why there are these different, there's different ways of understanding why there are different ways of understanding. <laughs> so it's similar to like when we're talking about kosher and, you know, yeah. a religious person would say, you know, a more religious person you know, would say this is how God decreed it and a less religious person might say, well, they didn't have refrigerators. So it kind of made sense. So that's right. that's my analogy to prove I'm understanding the words. Yep. Because words you. are good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So also, I think there's one more main point that's, that that's that I should that I should mention, and that's really the, it's the defining, the sort of concluding statement of the Gita, though it's not literally the very last verse. It's almost it's one of the, it's at the end of towards the end of chapter eighteen, but this there's a verse that's considered to be, the sort of bottom line of the Gita, the message, that it's all about, and that's the verse in which Krishna says to Arjuna. Abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me. Mm. Um, and this, the, the word, the Sanskrit word that's translated as religion is the word dharma. And that's another big topic in the Gita in general, dharma, your sacred duty is essentially what dharma is. Your, your, your sacred duty is your dharma. 
on, on a deeper level, Dharma means the, the natural characteristic function of something. So like you could say the Dharma of water is dampness. The Dharma of heat is, of fire is heat and light. So the sort of defining qualities of a thing, the, the qualities that you can't take out of something and still have that thing be itself mm -hmm. is, is its Dharma. The idea is that our Dharma, there's, there's what our Dharma is on the worldly level. Like it's my Dharma to be a good dad. It's my Dharma to, you know, uh, whatever, do my job well. Or, but all those things could be, you know, uh, they're, they're, all, they're all things that are part of this life. So the ultimate Dharma, the eternal or the Sanatan Dharma, uh, it, the eternal function of the soul is said to be to serve, to please, to yoke with the Supreme Soul. And that's what Krishna is advocating for in those words, abandon all varieties of dharma and surrender unto me. What he's saying there is, you know, abandon is, is strong because he doesn't actually end up telling Arjuna, so yeah, don't fight. It's quite the contrary. Arjuna doesn't want to fight and he's telling him to do it. So abandon doesn't mean walk off the battlefield and don't do it. But it means like in an, more inwardly, abandon emphasis on don't, don't identify yourself, still perform do what you do in this world, but but always know, keep always keep in heart that sort of bigger, deeper picture. Mm. Your eternality, your your eternal, you know, your your the fact, you know, the identity as a spark of I am, a spark of consciousness. But isn't your being a a good dad affecting the universe in turn? Yes, absolutely. So. That's the practice in practical application. What that looks like is, yeah, brushing your teeth the way you, you know, is, is doing all the little, you know, um, yeah, is doing everything in a way that expresses and nurtures that, that ultimate right. dimension of it. Absolutely. Right. So it's all related. It's all related. Um, yeah, and so, and this idea of surrender, basically, again, what that means is, like, like the offering thing, you know, you can only, sur you can only surrender, you can only, like, give your, give up, give yourself over to something, so long as you're thinking of yourself as separate from it. Right. Uh, recognizing, choosing to recognize that I'm not separate from it, I'm part of it, that's really, that's the, that accomplishes the stuff of surrender. There it is. You're already, you belong. Um, but there is a, you know, but there are different ways in which that idea of surrender is sort of exemplified in outward practice in, in the, in different traditions of, you know, different bhakti, different Gita based traditions. But, but that's what they ultimately are aimed at is that, that understanding, that recognition. Hmm. Uh, one other topic, one other, one other topic, because I, I, I want to cover, I, you know, it's my, it's my duty in doing this to cover main, the main things. And I think there's just one more that I would consider to be essential. And that is the topic of the super soul. So that's the, the super soul, the paramatma is the manifestation of divinity, the manifestation of God, Krishna, that's in our heart. 
our constant companion, our inner guide. And that's, that's a, 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 you know, the topic of the super soul comes up in various ways and places in the Gita, but it's important. Uh, and basically Krishna is in various places emphasizing his presence in the heart of, of all living beings. And so um, you, you have basically three levels of conception of, of divinity in, in the Vedas in general and in the Gita specifically. You have uh, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Paramatma is the super soul. Bhagavan is Krishna as the full personality, the full personhood. And, and the other one is Brahman. Mm -hmm. Brahman is just spirit. It's, it's understood as being impersonal, spiritual, just it's not a person, it's energy. It's an all-pervading energy, an all-pervading spiritual light that's, that's in everything and that everything is in. So Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan, that's an, that's, that's an important... What know, was it, the middle one? Para... Paramatma. So it's Param, P-A-R-A-M, still same word, Atma, A-T-M-A. Atma means self. So we are also, we're, I said, I use the word jiva, but the full term jiva is short for jivatma. So jivatma refers to the small self, atma is self. So jivatma is the atomic or the small particle self and paramatma is the paramount. <laughs> it's the paramount self. It's the, ult the, the supreme self. And it's, and, and it's typically translated as the super soul the super soul. And so, yeah, it's just a reference to. Wait, and then the last one. Uh, Bhagavan. Oh my gosh, my brain hurts. Yeah. You must be fun at cocktail parties though. Oh, um, and, and Bhagavan is the. Bhagavan, Bhagavan, yeah. Bhagavan is the super, super soul, I imagine. Yeah, Bhagavan refers to like Krishna as, uh, Bhagavan is the possessor of, all... Bhagavan, it refers to God like behaving like, it, God as like the fullest expression of of the supreme of supreme personhood. So the super soul is like this inner voice. The super soul is also depicted in art as being a four armed uh, blue being with a crown and different things in each arm. But it's very like it's like a formal. It has like a very formal appearance. The super soul is like very sort of godly, like in a formal kind of majestic way. Bhagavan refers to a level beyond that where there's not an emphasis on the majestic powerful, but more of an emphasis on the personal, warm, you know, um, uh, informal, you could say, aspect. So that's what's, de uh, that's what's depicted in the stories of Krishna's childhood in, in the in Vrindavan. He's enjoying himself with his friends. So that's Bhagavan, Paramatma or super soul is, you know, like the sort of, is, is also friendly. I mean, it is also described as being our, our friend, our constant companion, but there's this way in which there's, you know, it's depicted as being a sort of more um, formal and majestic, you know, manifestation of God. Anyway, these are, these are just three modalities, three, three ways in which divinity is conceptualized in, in the Gita 
and in Vedic thinking and teaching um, more broadly. And you do have different sects and traditions that emphasize different aspects of these. So typically the yogis that are practicing those, not always, but there's, uh, the more austere renunciate practices are often found among those whose focus is on Brahman, the impersonal all-pervading spirit that they are essentially trying to merge with or become one with. Whereas mm -hmm. the devotees, the bhakti yogis are, they don't wanna merge and lose their identity. They're not looking to do that. They're looking to stay an individual and have, have an eternal personal interaction with the Supreme person and with other G with, uh, and with each other. So, hmm. yep. So no more brain hurt. Yeah, my brain hurt. That's I, it. You lost me on the last part. That's why I just kept saying, hmm. Yeah. Well, my question is, why do we need those three parts of, because I feel like we're saying, so this is everything, and then this is everything, everything, and this is everything, everything, everything. Yeah. So, so I guess one answer that would be that, again, some academic scholar, maybe they would say, oh, there was an evolution in Hindu thought, you know, that, and it can seem like that, like if the oldest Vedic texts do seem to emphasize, there does seem to be a progression of thought. If when you look at the whole body of, of Vedic literature, if you look at the texts that scholars say are the oldest ones, there's a different, there's a different tone, there's different stuff going on there, but it definitely, you also see a continuity. Mm. In the tradition I studied in, they don't say that one came before the other, like by centuries. Uh, what they say is that v Vyasadev, who's the author of the Vedas, began with certain things and then he realized he'd left, he, he didn't go far enough explaining details and then that's what, why we have these, this, these different texts is we have Vyasadev feeling the need to expound on something further. That, that's, how it's, it's kind of, that's how it's kind of dealt with there. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's one way to answer the question, why do we need them? Um, but there's also the, the, I mean, this idea is also somewhat, somewhat akin to the, the Trinity conception in Christianity. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just the idea that people experience God in different ways. And so, you know, I guess there's some attempt here to relate to different, different conceptions. Interesting. The idea is that if that, I mean, from the bhakti point of view, just by focusing on Bhagavan, all the other, the, the other two are implicit and covered <laughs> by that. So there is, so the idea is not to walk around constantly dividing spiritual experience or conceptions of God into three. The aim, Krishna is basically, that's basically what Krishna is saying is just focus on me. You don't need to, you don't, that's, that's the, the sort of simple place to go with it is just focus on your relationship with me. And that that's automatically covers and includes all other all, all other aspects of it. Mm. So that's it. That's the Gita. That's, that's the, it. Okay. That's it. You got it. You're, that you're was good. easy. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun with it. That's it. He's alive. See. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very Wait, much. Please. I think that's very yeah. good. Very enlightening. Um, um, I'm sure I have a brain hurt and- um, Well, you need air too, right? You gotta you have fresh air coming in. 
No, but I don't leave my house, so it's okay. Oh, okay, okay. So. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool. I, things come to me. Everything gets delivered now, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I understand that. Um, well, if there are any other questions now, please feel free. If there are any questions later, feel free. Email me, innergarden, innergarden at AOL.com. You have an AOL too. Yeah. I, I we're the last people in the, I thought I was the last person in the world. <laughs> they're, just keep, it's, they're just keeping it going for us. I know. And I like how it says sign in or open an account. I'm like, no one is opening an account. Come on. It's good to have options, right? Exactly. Amanda, anything? Anything? Anything to? It's good, unless you guys have any questions. I mean, there's a lot in the Gita, you know? Not that you got the essence of it, so. Yeah, yeah, I don't wanna. No, I like the little, I, I like it, I just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, yeah, there's so much fast, so much good stuff, so much, but. Yeah, I, I think that really, you know, what emerged in my life was just the need for the the, the main parts, you know, the main upper, you know, the, the, the parts that I just, that I talked about are the parts that I think it comes down to. They're the parts that I found to be essential for my practical, actual use in life. Um, so that's, I feel like that's, that's the best, that's my best way of of sharing it with you. Hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. Yeah, if you guys want to um, call it a night, we can. Sounds Great. good. Thank you again, and it was very nice meeting you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much. Of course. From Francesco to everyone, thank you. He's thank gone. you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Madame. Okay. Thank I you so will be much. sending you a check and I hope that all is okay with you yeah, guys. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send something, okay. a, uh, a bill. All right, sounds good. You can email Revolution Yoga and we'll. Okay. We'll, yeah, maybe with your address. Uh, do we owe you for last one too or did Christine? Yeah, I, 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 I just didn't have to drive to like, I don't know. You know, you know I like doing this, but I, but uh, so I don't, you know. I don't like to make it feel like a. Um, I know. I'm sorry. But I, but <laughs> but I, 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 mind. I want to give you some kind of compensation. You know, your knowledge is very valuable and helpful oh. to them. Anytime. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone in my house has COVID, so I have to go. I've been sort of like running around attending some. I have to go do like 90,000 loads of laundry and feed them again. I'm actually, good. we don't have COVID that we know of, but I'm going to go do my next load of laundry also. Okay. Laundry is a problem in every household. Oh, that's oh, And you don't have, but you don't. I don't know. I, I have to get tested. I don't have, I haven't had any symptoms. I don't know why. Okay. Well, let me know if you need anything. Thank you. Yeah, we're holding it down. My daughter's better now. She only had, you know, I'm like loading them up with Ayurvedic herbs. So she she took well to it, but my, my husband stopped for a day. And I think that was a mistake because he's starting to spike a fever again. That's why he was like calling for me. So yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, We're in the crazy time. We just gotta. What? It's like, wow. 
Yeah. Just, you know, I'm surrendering. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking like Krishna takes everything away. So you just surrender. So you just surrender. So that's what I'm taking shelter in. And thank goodness we at least have some hope, something, some degree of hope on the political level, some, something that looks like reason to hope on the horizon, at least. Yeah, I keep hoping for that. It's too late for us though. It's like, <laughs> almost made it. <laughs> we almost made it, but no. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Yeah, I think the things will definitely get better. My Vedic astrologer keeps telling me in March, going to be really rough until March but once March hits everything's going to get much better for everyone economically and physically and health-wise and everything well that's good I, I meant specifically I didn't mean in terms of the virus and the vaccine I was talking about in terms of the leadership and the tone of it uh-huh yeah yeah that would be lovely to have some leadership